This is Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. Here we talk to industry experts about the future of mobility and how it will shape both our lives and the world we live in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Emerging Possibilities, powered by Volvo Group Australia. I'm Matt Wood. This is Tim Camilleri. And our guest today is Nathan Gore-Brown, General Manager of Revora. What's Revora? What is Revora? Really cut to it, Matt. Straight yeah, away. Yeah, it's it's you know, straight in. I'm, I'm all about the small talk. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Uh, thanks, Matt. So um, Revora is a, a company that's been recently born out of a, um, a fairly um, new but um, large part of the marketplace uh, company providing um, refrigerated vehicles. That's called Eurocold. Um, we um, rent, sell and repair um, particularly refrigerated um, trucks, lots and lots of diesel trucks on the road today. And Revora has been born out of that company to help that whole industry, the whole refrigerated transport industry, with a transition to um, away from diesel to alternative fuels, particularly electric in the initial, um, and uh, and support that whole industry with the learnings and the knowledge and the, um, and the products that will help them to do that. There you go. So... Give us a little bit, bit of background about yourself because that's a pretty niche kind of uh, point to arrive at. Like, you know, uh, I'm not sure if you're passionate about refrigerators or like or anything like that, but I'm, I'm sure there's uh, something else going on. Yeah, look, there's a lot of background. I started life as an auto electrician in Sydney and went over to the UK uh, after doing that pretty well and, and joined uh, Jaguar and became a dynamic stability control engineer at Jaguar. So kind of like sort of deep engineering and new product vehicle launches and so on and, and development. Um, moved from there to Aston Martin and, and worked at Aston Martin in the factory for about seven years doing product marketing roles. So um, global pricing, product content, definition and dealer training and all sorts of other aspects, putting new dealers across Europe as well as another role. So lots of different aspects of the whole sort of OEM space and learned how that went down. Came back to Australia and that's where I kind of got a bit of an insight to diesel. I went and ran the Northern Territory operation for Hastings Deer in Caterpillar. And so, you know, had uh, three sites across the Northern Territory, about 150 people and obviously mining equipment. But also at that point, there was uh, the cat trucks. Uh, um, I was going to say, yeah. that's a long way from the Midlands. It was a long <laughs> way from the Midlands. It was a long way from uh, million dollar sports cars. And, and big um, yellow machines. And yeah. to big yellow machines. But it took me back to a couple of things with my technical days. I was working with 65 diesel technicians. So being able to relate to those guys guys on the technical level. And, and at that point, I'd learned a lot about sort of business management. And then that particular role and the Caterpillar production system was really interesting to learn around operational management. So I kind of learned I quite like operations management. A couple of other roles and that happened after that, I moved back to back from the Territory to Queensland. And we've been here ever since. That was about seven years ago. My daughter was born just at the beginning of that. So I can always remember what the timing was like. <laughs> and so when I came back here, yeah, I started I worked for a different car OEM for a short while and then a couple can, of other you jobs. Can say the, you can say the name. Oh, I don't know if I can. <laughs> um, uh, might have to leave that one on the table. Um, check the LinkedIn for that. Um, I went on eventually to work for Tesla. I opened with a small team, the Tesla store here in Brisbane. Yep. I started the day before that store opened and then we took it from there and built the team from about six to 25 in those early days of just selling X and, and S. And I guess... That journey to Tesla before, you know, moving on to where I am today, that was really about, I always liked being part of the forefront of industry. So going to Jaguar and developing vehicles that were two or three years away from launch, working at Aston Martin, working on the product 
attributes required well in advance of actually putting pen to paper, well in advance of it going to market. So really enjoying that sort of front end of the spectrum. And moving back to Australia, that's a little difficult. Coming to work with someone like VGA would be an area where you can actually influence that product. But staying in sort of the car space, which is where I enjoyed, I saw electric as a as a real opportunity for where's the direction going. And, and the unnamed car manufacturer, I actually asked the question, so what are you doing about electric? And at that point in time, they said, oh, well, we, we don't see any future for that. This was in 2016. and uh, That'll never work. It'll never work. No, it won't catch on. We see lots and lots of time for the internal combustion engine. Since they have launched a vehicle that has kind of made its way off the end of the ramp and plunged into the sea at the end, and we'll see how they continue to function. I think any brand that's not embracing electrification at this point is going to really start to struggle in light and in heavy vehicles over the coming years. So and then after Tesla, which was a great period of time, I really enjoyed it, kind of got to that point where it was like, you can only do that for so long. I think Tesla has a, a shelf life. The recent CFO who just left that business, he did 13 years. I couldn't imagine doing 13 years in that business. It would be very, very tough, but you put your whole life into it. And, and I did enjoy that. But I left and joined a gentleman who you actually had a podcast with, I think number two, um, yeah, Mark Jarrett. Yeah. yeah, and joined Mark and, and we did a, a number of great projects in consulting with Movement for about four years before leaving there and joining the Eurocold group and starting Revora as the one and only employee um, <laughs> at this point in time, but we're growing pretty rapidly. And so there's been that consistent interest in what's happening at the forefront with shaping how the market and the users of the products that are coming out and the products themselves all sort of support the needs of the industry. So what's sort of driving that though? Like, is, I mean, you're mm-hmm. preaching to the converted when it comes to like, mm-hmm. you know, being at the sort of bleeding edge of it all. It's, yeah. it's a fascinating place to be, but mm-hmm. generally there's some sort of motivation, whether it's a philosophical thing mm-hmm. or whatever. So, I mean, well, what's... I reckon a couple of things. Having kids did actually make a bit of a difference. So I had my son just before we moved away from England to Australia and then to Darwin. And then straight after that, I'm there in the mining space. And there was a particular project up in the Northern Territory, which was using four V16 motors to boil water at an industrial level. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way. Cool sounding kettle, though. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, just, yeah. I mean, just quietly. <laughs> just turn the kettle for a little bit, shall I? Yeah. I'll be back. And a couple of things around that. And also... Seven litre V12s and the like. Well, you know, I remember doing four miles to the gallon in a uh, vanquish around a racetrack in the UK. I thought to myself, you know, that's pretty good going. (laughs) And so there's this atoning for sins, I think. There's definitely an element of that. I think we're all in that place. (laughs) I'm still lashing myself over the years from all the fossil fuels that I've been part of. But... I think also knowing that there's a different way to do things, is, it can be a different and in many cases better way to do things. So that's a driver. I did a bunch of work a few years ago with a couple of folks in the space with the Electric Vehicle Association and Emma from EV Firesafe and Claire Walter, who's a, a doctor of, of basically in, inhaling pollution and the impacts of that. And we developed a program called Idle Off. And that was an education program to talk about the pollution that people breathe in, particularly due to diesel particulates and so on. And so, again, that breathables is just as important to the carbon side of things for me. And so, you know, those are some of the things that drives me every day. And I think with the refrigeration space is we have a bit of a mission within the business about stopping food loss or food mm, waste yep. in the transport chain. And so how do we support that into the future as well with a transition away from diesel? So, so two parts of that. So it really is that 
It's interesting you bring that up because it's something that's probably been close to my heart in this journey is that urban interface, that where mm. people live, where people are, where people are walking, where kids are going to school, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's just the obvious place to start. And I mean... But also it's quite complementary to what this, the vehicles can do as yeah. well. Like you've got a high build-up of exposure, but what the vehicles are good at doing, they're not good at boiling water at whatever else, you know, they're not those situations. They, they're around those built-up areas as well. So it works hand-in-hand hand in my mind. Yeah, and, like, I'm going to sound like I'm about 105 years old right now, but Aren't I you? can remember. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, anyway, I, just, I had some work done. Can um, I can remember being at school and the Milko turns up to deliver milk and it's like an ancient truck with this mm. old fridge unit roaring its head off. In the middle of summer, you could just see all the smoke billowing up from Boring. it. You Dinosaur know, bones hopping yeah, out the back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like your, you know, like you said, your V16 gen sets. Yeah, like yeah. It's, mm. uh, there I are like better ways think, to do it. Yeah. There are better yeah, ways. Yeah, that, exactly. That's been a theme for these conversations a lot as well. It's yeah. about efficiency. Yeah. There's whatever else in the concept and rationale to why people are on the journey they're on in this space, but efficiency has come up a lot. There's a better way to do something. Or let's look into it. Let's investigate it. So quite yeah. complementary to that continuation of that conversation. Yeah, and quite often with some of the challenges we've talked about have been like quite product-based, but I know we were talking earlier around um, things like upskilling and things like that, which mm. is also a conversation we've not really broached. We haven't, that, no, no, no. Not, not in any real detail, but a very interesting one to think about, especially with your original background, yeah. thinking about it on the skills and technicians side, but yeah. also as an industry, as operators, as OEMs, as providers, there is a lot of upskilling to happen because this is new and different. Um, I think yeah. that's, you know, the concept of Revora yeah. probably lends itself well to that as well and what you can shape. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what I found with working with Mark at, at Movement is we together worked on the transition plans for around 10,000 vehicles here in Australia. Mm, mm. Um, some big fleets and some smaller fleets, I mean, a combination of smaller fleets. And so each time that you engage with a fleet manager, procurement team, ESG or, or sustainability team, all of those folks needed a, an EV101 kind of injection and then some more advanced information about where EVs fit and how do they plan their fleets and how do they do the change management side of things. So what that experience has led me to sort of look at how Revora can help those fleet managers, those operations managers, the cold chain team at our kind of customer levels to understand how they're going to integrate a transition into their businesses. What are they going to have to think about differently and what do they value differently as well? So we just talked about breathable pollution. Is that something that you value? Could you, you can put a dollar value on it. Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. We've, we've written some papers in yeah. my last role doing that. So, but you only accept that if you think it's a if you think it's if a it's thing. value you agree with or That's value right. you, you yeah. And we've got a number of customers in the Eurocoal group that are focused on delivering to childcare centres and schools and all your tuck shops and all that sort of thing. And so I think there's a point at which, and we talk about it kind of in a policy level, but there's a point at which there's a license to trade, there's a social license yep. to trade, and the, the trucking industry generally has to deal with social licenses. Mm. But as you're starting to deliver bits and pieces, like you talked about there, Matt, with dairy products into the school and coughing out diesel, there's a point at which we're going to see businesses, even precincts, say, we're not going to allow that anymore. So maybe Australia will be a slow one for that. We're seeing it in Europe a lot, but I think there's a lot of value there in, in helping all of those different decision makers at C-suite level, but also those sort of officer levels, those, mm -hmm. those procurement people and fleet managers, really trying to work out how do they navigate this space and, and upskilling them in the meantime to help them with that. But are you seeing a shift in 
attitudes at that level? Because like quite often we're used to talking to people uh, at that C-suite level and yeah. they're going, yeah, we're on the bus, we're going to do this. And quite often you get down to operational levels like, oh, that'll never work, it's stupid. In so, fact, you're right. A um, couple of those big transition plans that we worked on, the C-suite says, yes, go out to a consultant and ask them about how to do this and, and get them to tell the fleet manager to go and make the change. And it's like, it's never going to happen. How am I going to tell the fleet manager to change? The C-suite has to tell the business that this is the direction that we're going. And I think at the Revora, what we're particularly focused on is finding those businesses that have that challenge mm-hmm. and going in and saying, right, you've now got the why because the boss has told you to. We'll help you with the how mm, and mm, the what mm, mm. and de-risk all of those challenges that, that come with a big shift and change in, in the business. But it's like, the, you know, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> the light bulb's got to want to change. And I think it's a very similar sort of environment in this space. Yeah, yeah. But have you had any examples of going into that sort of almost hostile audience and bringing them around yet? Yeah, I know it's early days. Yeah, look, it is in some cases. I think what I do find is that there's typically a somebody, there's a passionate individual within middle space. It could be a C-suite person, but it's probably just a level or two down who's like, right, I see this as it's important. So they have had some sort of epiphany moment about, yeah, it's kind of important. And and that could be a lot of different things. That can be the carcinogens. That could be better ways or efficient ways to do it. That could be competitive edge to yes. if we go on this journey early, yes. we will learn about this and be like efficient Paul at this. Paul talked about last time, yeah. last uh, podcast of yours, there was yes, a conversation perfect. about how it became a, it's competitive advantage, it's learning early. And I try to use that when I'm talking to customers. Hey, if you start now, you'll be five years ahead of everybody else because you will have started five years earlier or whatever the period and is. And one truck, it's still learning. Right. Absolutely. And it's great. And it's great learnings to do, but it's finding that one or finding an individual who becomes a bit of a champion mm-hmm. yep. and then giving them power, like injecting them with information and knowledge and support that will allow them to make a big difference with a small amount of energy and then build confidence. It's easier for them inside to help their teammates, their stakeholders. They'll trust them quicker than they'll trust me. Yep. So if I can surrogate that trust, mm. then that sort of works pretty well. But uh, there's always hurdles. There's no doubt about it. It's never smooth sailing. No, it's it's not. But um, I think from our side, when we've gone into those situations and, you know, you found a point of friction, let's say, you know, they're being brought along. They're not a champion of it. They're not the one motivated to do the change. They're they're being part of it still today. Some of the best ones I've done is when you you bring a truck, you bring an EV and you put them in the seat and they get to experience it and understand what it looks like. Okay, this is something we could do. This is something would be good in, in certain applications, in certain situations, but, you know, how do we do it? For us, it's my old life as consulting or here at Volvo or I think, Nathan, mm-hmm. what you're doing as well, it is just about breaking down those barriers, making sure that the, the transition is as easy as possible and, and as, you know, much of a partnership as possible. Yeah, that's definitely how we yeah, do it. Yeah, I think this is really important though because, like, at the moment, I mean, we've got a – I have a customer that had a you know a, a truck bought in that they can't use that has been stuck down the back of their yard in Adelaide. And mm. if you speak to anyone in that depot, they just go, oh, that's some idiot head office. That was mm. their idea. It was their project. Mm. And they've got no investment in it. They don't want it to work anyway. Yeah. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of that. And I think what I'm finding as I go into particularly refrigerated fleets and have some of those conversations, many of the larger ones have actually gone down this path already. They went and bought a truck. They probably didn't even find charging that supported it. They certainly didn't support it with a plan, change management, training, and it ended up being sitting down the back. You ask anybody in that depot, so what do you think about electric trucks? Well, they're a... The point of the thing, the paperweight sitting out the back. The paperweight sitting out the back. And 
What we've then got collectively is maybe a whole fleet. I mean, I know a couple of fleets have both got about 800 vehicles in them and they've been through this journey. And these people around this table and people like us are going to have to help that those companies to undo these first impressions. So one of the things I'm really passionate about now is making sure that that first impression for an EV is a good one mm. and not to give us all a hard time in trying to undo those poor first impressions. But how do you do that? I mean, for us, mm. as Tim said, we'll turn up with an electric truck and mm. just go drive it and all that sort of thing. But so in your yeah. case, how so, do you tackle that? So one of the things I've, we've started to build at Revora is a whole ecosystem. So that's making sure that, and those are the, some of the things that I don't think were done particularly well first time around, which is take the task, what is the customer trying to achieve? And it's the sort of thing that you do in your task profiling tool and so on, mm. is take the task and build the right truck. So I've been working on this for a little over six months now, and we've gone through and assessed multiple sizes of truck. So we're certainly looking at the vehicles at the end of the spectrum of the size of of truck that the Volvo supply, but all the way down to vans as well. So refrigerated vans and and that sort of thing and everything in between. And so then saying, okay, well, here's the task. Will that truck do the job? What is the charging required to support that? Does How do you get that charging on site? Does the site How do you set the site up yep, for it? Yep. Absolutely. And if you don't think about all of these aspects, how do you finance it? Because that's something that yep. we take care of as well. It's, it's not cheap to do. And then even supplying supply of energy. So we've got uh, partners that support procurement of energy that will help you reduce your total cost of ownership by buying energy well. Hmm. Um, and then also data. So again, Volvo systems are very, very good, but being able to provide a good dashboard for data, fleet operators, for all those folks to be able to see what's going on afterwards. And I think if you leave any one of those elements out, you end up with something missing and a leakage path or however you want to put it. A potential hiccup. It's a hiccup opportunity. Yeah. And so what we look at there is to try and de-risk the whole entire system mm. through also training as well to provide confidence that before you take the deployment, it should work. During the deployment, you can see it's working. And then as you go on, can you stretch that deployment further? So if the vehicle starts life with an expected 150 Ks of range and, and you can do that quite well, could we stretch that to 180 and watching what's actually going on with the customer's world? But I think setting expectations is an important part of that as well. Not going into bolshi. I think some of those vehicles that ended up as paperweights also went in with really overpromised and underdelivered specs. And yeah, we are where we are. So, but we're not talking like a dry goods body here. We're not talking a, mm. a, a tray-back truck. We're mm. talking about something shaped like a brick, so it has no aerodynamics. It has an, <laughs> another power source on it as well. A leash, um, a vampire. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? Like, so it, whilst it seems like the best solution for urban distribution, it's also probably one of the more difficult ones to achieve, right? Absolutely. We do this because it's hard, not because it's easy. <laughs> um, and particularly with... I, the, I, do I need to know what you do for a hobby? On the <laughs> <way? Anyway. laughs> well, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll yeah, get to yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, we okay. will get to that. Yeah. Um, so one of the things there is definitely, this is for urban delivery. So there's plenty of refrigerated transport that goes up and down the coast and regional intercity and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of the times, the produce that we're talking about does come out of, particularly fresh produce, is coming out of the country and coming into the city. But they often go into DCs and then they are distributed locally. And so, as we all know, we're really focusing on that urban mm. last mile. That's where the breathable pollution bit comes in. And that's where... That's the, where currently the technology, technology and the product can do. But also, a lot of that operation would be like a lot of multiple stops. It's not about yeah. picking up from the DC and hauling to 400 kilometres away. That's right. It's doing multiple stops within a 
Just 60 kilometre, 50 kilometre range. That's right. It's just one part of the chain is that long haul, but the short haul yeah. bit is is another important part of the chain. And so that's where the focus is. So then it's about kind of how long are you fridging for and then how many Ks are you doing and trying to bring that in there. And I think one of the things we focused on is efficiency around not just our body. So we've developed a lightweight body for particularly the smaller class of vehicles, but also a fridge unit that, and we're working with our partner's carrier to build out fridge units that access the energy as, as early in the system as possible. So basically mm-hmm. taking direct high voltage battery energy into a motor and that motor pump to then run the fridge so that you're reducing the amount of elements that are in the system, which are loss opportunities, but also trying to save energy further back in the system. So one of the things that we'll be doing is, is adding air curtains to all of our openings as well as standard, because we believe that that will help reduce the loss of cooling. And these sorts of things, you probably wouldn't bother with diesel. You can do it, sure. It'll throw some money on the cost, but sure. the amount of energy that you're losing and, and the amount of money you're paying to, to fill back that energy is, is minimal. But we think that a little bit of extra weight, tiny bit, and a tiny bit of extra energy will actually get you a big win in the, um, the amount of energy that you're saving from the overall refrigeration. But it's not an easy spot, but I think it will be a, a good niche for those ones with the right range and the right use case. And that's where we'll focus first. We've had conditions like that where we've had, I'll just call it in this case, you know, a fridge unit or whatever, and and how much power does it draw? And the answer was put more diesel in it. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, no, we need to calculate this out. We need to use our system to understand exactly what this vehicle will do. But I think it's an important part. Efficiency is coming up again, but it's not just about building the truck. It's not just about getting, but it's thinking about what does the body do? How do you operate with it? You leave with 100% battery and the body cooled, because then the body's not drawing power from the vehicle as well. It's about thinking about those situations mm. that mean that the batteries on the truck are driving the wheels as much as possible and getting you where you need to go rather than doing having cool leak out the back with no curtains on it, things right. like that. It's a good view to have a think about you know the steps in the whole process, what the whole vehicle and operation looks like. There's even operational areas where typically today, most fridges on most trucks have what they call a standby fridge. It's a little plug-in and you're just basically putting power from the wall Mm. into the fridge to bring it down early or maybe continue it to be cool once it's been loaded. So then if you did that with an electric truck, you'd end up with two cables going into the truck. Well, that's a bit silly. So one of the things we've been looking at is is a charge and cool concept where the thing can be charging, it's got one cable going in, it can be feeding the battery, but typically the feed that's coming into the vehicle is, is far higher than the fridge will ever draw. And so then it can charge and cool at the same time. So three o'clock in the morning before your shift at four o'clock starts, you're starting to cool the vehicle whilst it's on charge. With the one cable. With the one cable. Between the vehicle and the body. One bit of infrastructure, one cable to worry about, one cable to run over, um, (laughs) all of those sorts of bits and pieces. And and, and, we're talking about them on the roof and a reel now, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's it, overheads. Yeah, overheads. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And so trying to think about the operational. So I've done quite a few ride-alongs now with some of our customers in diesels and just going, you know, let's go and unload chicken for the day. Mm. But really understand some of the operational behaviours and the occurrence at a driver level, at a site level, you know, all those sorts of bits and pieces have been fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Well, there you go. I'm impressed that you find it so interesting, most oh. people. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm it's really good. It's just... I've always been inquisitive. It's probably gotten me into a bit of trouble. Over <laughs> no, that's right. I have a confession to make. I have a background in refrigerated transport there you uh, go. Very years ago. So, well, that's um, good. You can so, grow um, Yeah. <laughs> I have all the answers. <laughs> no, I don't have any answers either, really. But other than I do remember air curtains and I do remember um, – Sure power for uh, fridges for ice cream. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So ice cream distribution was always a big thing to have, the, right. have them uh, down at 
minus 25. That's right. Into a wall. That's right. Ice cream in itself is just a whole other beast. And, and that's probably another thing I've found is, is different commodities, different loads that we're talking about. Everything from, you know, um, how much does a pallet weigh? You know, you could be driving around doing flowers and it's like a 200 kilo load, but the same physical area could be ice and it would be a you know one ton load or something like that. And so all of a sudden you've got this another dimension. I feel like, you know, I'm living in a 5D chess because <laughs> like of all of these different dimensions, not just energy, but load yeah, yeah. and all the other stuff. But um, yeah, trying to find a way to put some cookie cutters over that. So operators, ourselves, everybody can go, okay, well, I think that's probably the right solution for that kind of environment or arrangement and then it'll take up an aspect of, of the industry and mm. find different solutions for other aspects. And it's growing, you know, it's low-hanging fruit to some extent, but it's what fits yeah. within the mould quite easily. You're not doing ice, 16 pallet, <laughs> going to Mount Isa yep. tomorrow. Yep. You used to probably start with this example there was, you know, it's a six pallet uh, flower delivery unit that goes from markets to stalls and within a 20-kilometre range. That's right. Uh, and that's not, you know, but that's a job that a vehicle now, whether it runs on diesel, electric, or, you know, anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. unicorns, yeah, fairy <laughs> dust, fairy yeah. dust, yeah, um, would do that job now, yeah. and you know, you are changing over to something that would just work with electric. That's right. Do you think, from a technical perspective, though, that we're tooled up enough? Do you think that as this vehicle park grows? Do you think we've got enough technicians that know what they're doing? Well, Do you think, think there's been enough investment in, in yeah. training? I found myself getting quite close to that space. You know, I've got, a, I guess, a background in, in technical side of things as an auto electrician. And then I did a dealer training role when I was at Aston Martin. So I had both sales and, and technical training under my belt there. So I have a good understanding of the, the sort of OEM level kind of requirements for these kinds of things. But it's about proliferating that, that information and then also conversations I've been having in the last little while with some folks, even in the mining space. So sometimes at Revora, I get dragged away from refrigeration, as, as cool as that is. Um, that, and, I and, I've tried. Um, <laughs> and even having conversations with some folks in the mining space, because that's kind of forward thinking area. They've got a bigger problem and it's coming at them fairly early. And I've done a lot of work around buses, which is probably the, the, the most forefront of deployment as well. So those areas, well, what we're finding is trying to find a right sizing for that training as well. There are diesel fitters and auto electricians and whatever else out in the marketplace. You know, guys in your workshops today, they know stuff. They know a lot of stuff. They're mm -hmm. very, very good. What do you need to give them to get them to be able to deal with an electric vehicle, to be safe, but then also be competent and then also be effective? And what I find sometimes in the governmental space is they want not only to be those first three, but also, I don't know, and fly to the moon. They try and, I think there's a little bit of overdoing it. And okay. because it's new and scary, they go, oh, we have to do everything. Remove all like, the risk. Right. You know, and it's like, well, let's just be good in the pursuit of perfect. Let's get <laughs> some stuff done. And mm. up until fairly recently, there's been six iterations of the national standard for EV and hybrid technician training course, the AUR. And the first five never got delivered to my understanding. And I went all around the country trying to find out, has anybody delivered this course? Has anybody delivered this course? So I went through five iterations of, of refresh and didn't really get delivered anywhere. And no one actually held the certificate. It's like, well, what's the point? Well, we're navel gazing, right? Yeah, we just yeah, need yeah. to get some stuff done. And so you're starting to see some folks get out there, but you know, there's tens and tens of thousands of technicians that are going to need to be trained mm. at least with the basics and before they get themselves um, you know, to be safe and then also to be effective. Mm. And I think as people who are trying to put vehicles on the road, that will become, or can become a barrier. 
what it would also do is, is mean that we all will focus back on the OEMs. Yes. The reality is that if we want those vehicles to be dealt with and, and worked on, as we'll have, come back to the OEM. And, you know, there's a bit of a fear that the, the marketplace that's grown out of technicians and, and so on and, and workshops and all that sort of stuff, that the private workshop start to shrink because access to this knowledge is being held back at this stage. I'd really like to see that accelerated. Mm. Currently, yes, you know, it's being held within the OEMs. But as you said, we built up an economy and in in an industry that you know, doesn't revolve around that. And That's right. the flexibility that that allows for. The regionalisation. The regionalisation of it, yep. Yeah, particularly. That, that, would be, that could be a huge loss and something yeah. that needs to be considered yeah. as we go down this path. That's right. So, um, But then, you know, where are those vehicles going to go? If they're going to be city-based, then, you know, maybe city workshops will start to get around that and be able to support them. And so it's going to be a really interesting part of the whole entire journey. I just would love to see the... Um, education space just you know, move on this. That was a good example of, you know, they're probably going to start around the metro areas. So, you know, you don't have to deploy training to everyone to put one truck in. Right. You just need to get something going to keep the truck going. Keep the truck and, going. and that's, you know, we've always played on the philosophy of make sure the technicians are trained before the truck goes in place. Yeah. And building it out from there. Yeah. A critical part of breaking down barriers again and yeah. making sure that the transition is easy as possible. That's right. I think with the proliferation of light vehicles, you know, mm. cars, there's, you know, nearly 100,000 electric vehicles on the road today in Australia, and there's about 250 electric trucks, something like that. You know, last yeah. time I looked yep. at uh, tick data. Mm. So we're talking about the electric vehicle transition is happening in other sectors than heavies. Heavy might be able to rely on some of those technicians as well as we go forward. Yeah, there you go. I do have to bring this up because we did sort of discuss it. It's a little bit off topic, but as you alluded to earlier, you are a bit of a rev head. And um, mm. you do have a project in your garage. Oh, good. The yeah. Leaftus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Leaftus. Yeah, Tim's dubbed it the Leaftus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk us through it. Yeah. What so, is a Leaftus? What is a Leaftus? I like it. So been an EV guy for a little while, probably about seven years now. And one of the things I think as you make your way through EV indoctrination is you kind of need to do a conversion at some point. Um, Don't but, tempt me. No, I know. It's one, what was the one we came up the other day for me? Oh, uh, Commodore. I was going to do a Commodore. Oh, goodness me. I think they already did that, didn't they, years ago? They just forgot oh, they, to keep going with yeah, it. the hybrid? No, no, there's actually is it full electric. Full electric. Yeah, one. I've seen one at Tritium before. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Tim wants to upset Bogans. <laughs> that's it. Basically, that's, that's all he wants to I'm do. I'm glad we cut to the point there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine turning up? <laughs> well, see, that's part of my desire. So maybe my foot into the Leaftus was the Honda E. So oh, yeah. I imported a Honda E from the UK, which is, a, you know, a little Japanese kind of funky little car. And I used to take it to Cars and Coffees. Yeah. And the biggest V8 blower out of the bonnet car would be where I would park it next to if I possibly could. Because <laughs> yeah. it is tiny of It's a car. tiny and it's yeah. funky and it looks like so it looks like Asimo. You had, Asimo, it, looks you like had it in the Hero Blue as well. And it was in the best colour that yeah. was in the range. And that vehicle was like, that, it was a conversation starter. And um, The fact that the dash went from, you know, one side to the other and had a fish tank. Cameras for mirrors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what else was there? It's was, it was just bonkers. And, and it was really quick as well, rear wheel drive thing. Anyway, I had to sell that to be able to pay for the Leafters. So, okay, I'm going to do a conversion. Um, my grandfather rebuilt. What is the Leafters? Yes. <laughs> what so is it? It is what a is it 1974 on? Lotus Europa twin cam. And my grandfather used to restore them. So I remember as like a seven or eight-year-old kid standing next to his bright red Lotus Europa in the back of Sydney. And it was like a, oh, and maybe one of those first little drops of like sports car injection, which then obviously turned into something a lot more at my time at Aston. And so 
the thought was, well, I really want to do one of those. There's a family link to doing a, a Lotus Europa, but I don't want to do oily bits anymore because they just annoy me. So I found a leaf and it's actually a US Californian car mm. that has been imported. I'm doing a left to right hand drive conversion on it. I'm doing a whole strip back to um, nut and bolt restoration and putting a Nissan Leaf powertrain through it. I tossed up between a Model 3 and a Nissan Leaf and, and I found that basically the same amount of power and twice the torque was probably enough for a 700 kilo car. And um, <laughs> I've chosen no <laughs> sense of adventure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's enough. I, you know, there's only so much tyre where you want to <laughs> deliver. So I went and found myself a Nissan Leaf that has got a clapped out battery. Actually, late last week, I pulled it apart. And so drop the motor out of it, drop the inverter out of it, all that sort of stuff. It's been a long time since I've been on the tools and I certainly still ache from it. <laughs> bruises to be had as well. Yeah. Um, but so the concept there is to keep the car at the same curb weight, so mm. 700 kilos, put about a 20 kilowatt hour battery in it. It'll have about 110 horsepower and 280 newton meters of torque. And um, we'll see what the not to 60 will be afterwards, but really be a digital modern interpretation of a 1974 car that has been written up so many times as the car that is on the road that is closest to an F1 from a handling point of view. So of yep. the 70s, Jim Clark and the team, uh, I think that's going to be pretty amazing. And, and it sits about a yeah. metre off the ground. So it'll force me to keep myself fit so I can get in. <laughs> so there's another little ulterior. <laughs> I'll, I'll need to find a photo of one just so we can insert it into the video it's from this episode just so yeah, I yeah, can yeah. tell what we're talking about because they are a beautiful looking car. Affectionately was, known as the bread van. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, was, I was probably... I have to confess, I was almost more of an esprit kind of. It's the later version. Yeah, yeah, guy. But uh, yeah, blame James Bond for that and submarines. But um, but I think this space appeals to me, and I know Mm. we're really going off topic, but I still think it's a really interesting thing. Like, because we, from a corporate level, we talk about circularity all the time, right? Mm. Like, you know, we're talking about repurpose, reuse. In our diesel truck, more than 90% of our Volvo FH is uh, recyclable. Every new Volvo FH contains about 30% of recycled materials as its construction, Mm. all of that sort of thing. And we're talking about circularity with our batteries. But I love the idea that we can take these vehicles and give them a new life and still make them fun and still create this... You know, continue whole, them on, you know, yeah, rather yeah. than having them rotting away because for whatever reason, bringing new life to them and keeping that going. But so many people in this space love vehicles, love driving, love, you know, all of these things, but then... You wouldn't be in this feel, space. You wouldn't, you know, most people wouldn't be in this space yeah, if they do a feel love guilty. for it. You've come into it, you know. You know, feel guilty about the V8 in the shed or whatever, you know, yeah. and, and it's sort of... I'm, I'm very much a, a believer in, you know, whilst people still have horses in stables that they're in their yeah. shed, people will have cars in the, in their sheds and, and they'll be... <laughs> I always take that as people brewing, you know, fuel in their bathtub uh, in like oh, 40 mate. years' time. Oh, you know, yeah. you know, trying to keep Hawking the fuel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to keep the tax, you know, dodge the taxes with some moonshine, <laughs> maybe. But um, I think having spent so long in hypercars and sports cars and and seeing what that means to people. The passion behind it, the emotion it brings. Absolutely. And, and, you know, whether that be the really early ones, you know, DB5s, DB6s, DB3s that I've been involved in right through to some of the the modern icons. I I was the sales manager for 177 Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, more recently things like Valkyrie and and the Aston range. Those vehicles are going to have 
a space in the shed because just because they're too expensive, but they're going to have a space in the shed for a long time. And well, there are half the time. Towards, yeah. Exactly, more art than car. Yeah. And so, you know, to have them not run is is a travesty and mm-hmm. how little fuel in a, in a comparison, it's really inconsequential compared to what we're seeing in, you know, in freight and in, mm-hmm. and in um, typical A to B transport. We know we can do it without using fossil fuels. So I think that's a really important part, but losing that, because there's an expression there. I mean, you know, modern day sculptures, really, when it comes down to, vehicles and and even material science stuff that's Mm. come out of sports cars and so on. It's it's helped us to take the the technology wave forward. So So electric conversion of a 177. It's bold. Can't see it. It's bold. (laughs) Although I do have an aspiration to maybe do an an old 90s NSX one day. Oh, okay. I can be done with that one. That's that's on the bucket list maybe, but um, Mm. let me get through the Lotus first. I think it's going to take some time. Just keep telling Tim about it because I really, really want to see an electric... VX SS Commodore. VX. 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 SS Commodore. I thought we were going back to like something like a VL. No, 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 no. We didn't. No, no, not tasteful. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. Sorry. Yeah. No <laughs> premonition. Like, you know, VT, VX, like something, you know, curvy, middle, you know, middle 2000s. Like an X Taxi or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. Oh, perfect. That's Absolutely. exactly what Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, we've managed to completely derail the podcast talking about uh, stuff with wheels, but it's still been really fun. Um, thanks very much for uh, coming on. Yeah, pleasure, man. Really good. Appreciate it, Nathan. Thanks, Tiz. Thank you for listening to Emerging Possibilities. Send your comments, suggestions and questions to emerging.possibilities at volvo.com. And of course, remember to rate and review this show.